Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any info on our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Well, we're in our series in the book of Revelation, and we're working through the book one chapter at a time. And so uh, last week, of course, we took a break. We had a wonderful, amazing Easter services, and Pastor Ray was up here again, which is always awesome, and the music was amazing as always. Um, but two weeks ago, we did chapter 8, and uh, today we will do chapter 9. Now, chapters 8 and 9 deal with the trumpet judgments, okay? And remember, the book of Revelation is built around this, these three series of judgments, the seal judgments, and the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments, okay? And so chapters 8 and 9 deal with the, that middle series of judgments, the trumpet judgments, okay? And I'll just put up a diagram just to remind you of where we're at again, a diagram I put up two weeks ago. Uh, the seven trumpets can be broken up into a four and a three, and uh, the first four trumpet judgments have to do with natural disasters, okay? Natural catastrophes. And of course, we all know that there's different sources of human suffering on the earth. One source of human suffering are natural events like earthquakes and hurricanes and tornadoes and famines. Those are all natural disasters that, that cause people to suffer here on the earth. But then there's another source of evil, and there's probably multiple other ones as well, but another source of evil would be uh, human and demonic sources of evil. So those would be the kinds of evil that cause suffering like terrorism and war and genocide and rape and those sorts of things. Now, oftentimes, human and demonic sources of evil are worse than natural catastrophes. Isn't it true? Like, like hurricanes do a lot of damage and cause a lot of suffering. I would never want to minimize that. But at the same time, war and genocide, it, often the, the, the levels of evil and suffering are far worse, okay? And so what we see in the trumpet judgments is the first four are all natural disasters. And then at the end of chapter eight, there's this switch. And uh, John says, now woe unto the inhabitants of the earth at the next three woes. So the first four trumpets are bad enough. But then the last three are called the three woes, okay? They're worse than the first four. And I'll leave the seventh one out. It doesn't, it, it comes up a couple of chapters later. There's a bit of a, uh, there's a, a, an interlude. But in chapter nine, we see uh, two, uh, the trumpets five and six, and they're worse than the natural disasters. We see human and demonic evil now, okay? And so we're going to dig into that. And you might be sitting there again, and you might be going, I wonder how this is practical to our lives. I really believe Again, that all of Revelation is not just prophetic, but pastoral. It is meant to encourage us. Chapter by chapter, it's meant to encourage us and edify and exhort us. And I think you're going to find that out again today here in chapter 9. But let's begin reading in verse 1. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he... So this isn't just a physical star, okay? In ancient times, they often associated... Uh, angelic beings with stars. And, and that goes back, uh, you know, the roots of that go back thousands of years to very ancient times when ancient peoples, they had, when they saw the sun moving across the sky and the moon moving across the sky and the stars moving in the sky, when they would see things move, their only concept is if it moves, it must be living. 
And so it came very early on in human history that, and that's why people worship the sun and they were worshiping the stars and the moon because they thought of these things as living because they move. And so anyway, uh, in, even in many Bible passages, stars and angels are, are kind of linked. And so this isn't just a physical star, obviously, because it's said that it's a he, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Okay, and he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like power of scorpions of the earth. So this angelic being opens up the bottomless pit, which in biblical thought, as I'm going to show you, in Jewish thought was the place where uh, fallen angels and demonic spirits are locked up. And then out of this, we see these, these monstrous beings released, okay? Skip ahead a couple of verses to verse 7, and we get a description of them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses, so clearly these are not regular locusts. But again, we know all of that because it's, a, it's an angel opening the bottomless pit. Any first century person reading this hears bottomless pit, key being opened, and they're thinking evil spirits, okay? That's what, that's what they're thinking. In appearance, these locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like human's hair or like women's hair. And uh, their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of, of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions. And their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel. So there we see it explicitly stated. Their king is an angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. Literally, that just means dis destroyer or destruction. Okay, so that's a very ominous name for an angel to have. That's not your guardian angel. That's not the one you want Jesus sending into your little child's bedroom at night to protect them. This is an ominous. This is a, this is a, a very dark angel. Now, over the years, many well-meaning people, and, and really, you know, people who love Jesus, that's the only reason, you know, that they're studying the book of Revelation, have read this passage and, and tried to explain what, jo what uh, John is describing, and, they've, and there's been all kinds of speculation. And again, well-meaning people, not bad. And again, the reason they're doing this is because they're trying to understand Revelation, which is a wonderful thing to do. But I've seen all kinds of things, you know, uh, hypothesized about this passage. Uh, one thing I read once was, was a guy was saying that John was seeing modern-day attack helicopters. Okay, so the women's hair is sort of like the blades swinging around. Um, it, you know, the noise of the wings is like many chariots rushing into battle, iron breastplates, and then they even have tails. So, you know, and then people go, okay, well, maybe that's, it's like maybe John's just seen a modern-day attack helicopter, and so, uh, but he just doesn't know how to describe it, so he describes it this way, okay? And again, I really believe these people are, like, they're well-meaning, godly people, and, and certainly you're not becoming, you know, some kind of an apostate by speculating something like that here in this passage at all. I just feel very strongly that it totally misses the mark. I think if you just read this passage in a straightforward way and you put yourself in a first-century mindset— the bottomless pit, their king is an angel. Um, 
what any first century person is thinking is these are demonic spirits. These are demonic spirits being released. There's a key, they're open up, and these demonic spirits come out. And that's why they're, they're described in these grotesque ways is that, you know, demonic spirits are, are grotesque, okay? Um, and, they're, and they're evil. Now, uh, this actually is in the Bible even, by the way, this idea, because some of you are going, wait a minute, wait a minute. So we, we just kind of have to take a... a a little stop here, because some of you are going, okay, demonic spirits and fallen angels are locked up already? Like, I thought Satan was already on the loose. And this is uh, a really important uh, topic to just talk about briefly. There's actually some Christians out there who, based on Revelation, they believe, and, and other things in Revelation chapter 20 and things, they actually believe that Satan is already locked up right now. And uh, I really believe that is a worldview that is in many ways harmful because you actually lose your ability to explain the evil we see in the world right now. Okay? But, it's, but there is no question that some angels seem to be locked up. And we see that in a couple of places. So let's just, let's just take a few minutes here and just look at this idea of angels being locked up. And is Satan on the loose? And how do we bring these things together? So first of all, there's a couple of obscure passages in the New Testament which clearly talk about angels being locked up right now. One of them is 2 Peter 2, verse 4, where it says this, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Okay? So there are angels who have sinned that Peter says have been, have been uh, cast into hell already and they're chained up until you know, this day of the Lord, this time of judgment when they're going to be released, okay? We see this uh, also repeated in Jude, which is these two books have a lot of overlap. Jude says this in Jude 1 verse 6, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So here we have a couple of verses that clearly talk about some angels being locked up until the day of the Lord, until this day of judgment, this time period of, you know, just before and, and around Jesus' return. Now, again, like I said, there are, there are Christians who actually take verses like this and some stuff in Revelation. They say, look, Satan's already been locked up. Which, again, if that is, if that is true, wow. Because there's a lot of seemingly demonic activity going on in the world today what does the Bible teach? Does the Bible teach that they're all locked up right now? Or does the Bible teach that only some are locked up? Well, uh, I'll just take you to a couple of passages. We could go to many. But the Bible clearly teaches that the devil is on the loose right now. 1 Peter 5, 8. This is Peter again. He says this in his first letter to us. Okay, be, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to be devoured. So we're actually supposed to be on the lookout as Christians. Too many Christians ignore entirely the existence of the devil. I mean, some people pay him too much attention, but other Christians pay him no attention. Peter says, actually, we need to be on the lookout. There's actually a devil out there, and he's on the prowl looking for people to devour. So he's, he's not locked up right now. Ephesians 6, 11, verse 11 to 12 says this, Paul, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We're supposed to actually stand against him. He's not locked up yet. He's on the loose. There's no question. And we are to be aware of him. Now, look what Paul says next. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul actually says the conflict that we see in the world and in the culture, it's easy for us to pick out people and government and various things and say, that's our enemy. And Paul actually is so aware of the demonic realm. He says, you have to remind yourselves, Christians, that those people are actually not your enemies. You need to be praying for them. The real enemy is there are these powerful forces of darkness behind the people that are pulling strings and, uh, and, and causing uh, darkness and evil and attack in this world. We really are in a spiritual battle, okay? So now if we go back to 2 Peter and Jude and to Revelation, clearly, uh, okay, not all the, the fallen angels and demons are locked up. Clearly not. The devil's on the prowl. He's got powerful forces. Paul says we're at war with him. But we have these passages that talk about uh, some fallen angels or, or angelic beings or, or demonic spirits who are locked up right now. And again, to our modern minds, thinking about these things seems a little odd. We don't really think about these things. We don't think about the spirit realm a lot, at least here in the West, okay? But again, you have to understand the context that John is writing in. In the first century, people thought about this kind of stuff a lot. And in the Jews, in fact, had a very developed theology of this. There's lots of extra biblical writing that talks about exactly these things. And uh, they believed that the fallen angels that were, are locked up right now come from Genesis 6. And I'm not going to go into that. The Bible doesn't explicitly tell us that, so I don't need to be certain about it. And it doesn't really matter for this message. I'm just telling you it's something they thought about. And, and 2 Peter and Jude certainly seem to confirm it. But, uh, but the Jews had a very developed theology that it was the, those fallen sons of God in Genesis 6 who had... Uh, children with, with women, and that was, is what brought along the evil that caused the flood, okay? But anyway, uh, whichever group of angels it is, there's this group of angels right now and demonic spirits who are locked up right now for some kind of heinous crime, and the rest of the demonic world is not locked up, and this group uh, is at some point going to be uh, released, okay? And so we read the description again. And, uh, and what they do, verse 8, their hair like women's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. Now, again, one of the things we have to watch for in Revelation is this tendency to turn everything into this sort of cartoonish picture. And so... Uh, people have, again, imagined all kinds of things. Are, are we going to see these monstrous creatures all running around and stinging people and, and, and people rolling around in their front yards and their basements kind of screaming in, in agony? And they, we have these sort of cartoonish visions. And so the first question is, like, are we going to see these creatures? Like, are we actually going to see locusts with hair and teeth and all this crazy thing? And I'll, I'll tell you what I think. And I, I've you know, in some of these chapters, there's things that I feel I really know, and then there's things it's like, I'm okay with it, and I, and I can't be 100% sure. I really don't believe that we're going to physically see these things. And the reason is because we don't see demonic spirits now for the most part. Isn't that true? 
I mean, I know, I know people, trustworthy people, who have had unusual experiences where they saw demonic spirits. Okay? So it does happen, but usually, I mean, Paul says our, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against these principalities. So our whole fight in this world is against them. They're all over the place, but we don't see them. We don't see them with these eyes, right? I also know people, trustworthy people, who in unusual circumstances have seen angels. And again, I really believe, according to Scripture, that that the spiritual realm is all around us. Like, there's probably angels in here right now. I don't doubt that at all, but we don't see them physically. doesn't mean they're not there. It just means we don't see them. I really believe John is describing, what he's describing here, coming out of the pit, and it's so horrific, and people have imagined all kinds of crazy things. I, I really believe what's happening in this chapter is he's being given God's perspective, and he can see the physical and the spiritual overlaid the way they really are. So he's describing these beings that in our world, it just doesn't make sense, but it makes perfect sense if you realize he's seeing into the spiritual realm. And he's seeing these demonic spirits um, in the physical. But I I just really don't believe we're actually uh, going to see them. And there's many stories in Scripture where people had to have their eyes open in order to see uh, the demonic. And one of them I'm not going to get into. Christine, I'm going to skip over that. I just just don't want to take the time on it. But there's the the fascinating story of Balaam in uh, Numbers 22, where there's an angel, and Balaam can't see the angel, yet the angel is ready to kill him until God opens his eyes, okay? And there's lots of stories like that. But anyway, I I really believe these things will be invisible to us, just like demons are today, because I just believe they're demonic spirits. But anyway, what are these demons going to do to people? Well, if we jump ahead here, Revelation chapter 9, verses 5 to 6, it says this, they, these demonic spirits, were allowed to torment them, that's the people of the earth, for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. And again, I want to encourage us not to take cartoonish views of this. And over-literalism is something that often plagues Christians when we don't read our Bibles with a combination of the Holy Spirit and common sense. I really don't think God is suspending people's ability to die in this plague. Like if someone during this time climbs up a tall, tall tower and throws themselves off, it's not going to be like a cartoon. They'll hit the ground, the concrete will crack, and then they'll kind of go, oh, that really hurt. You know, the face a little bit flat and they'll keep living. Like I really don't think that's how this works. Or if someone shoots you during this time or shoots themselves, it's not like a cartoon again. The bullet goes through your head and then you're still alive. The point is, They long to die and death will flee from them. It's a horrific time. And I'll share some historical things in just a minute. There have been many other historical times in history that have been so horrific, unfortunately, in human history, that it has been worse for many people than death. And people longed for death and longed for it to be over, okay? But anyway, before we go any any further, what this means, these demonic creatures stinging people... Let's just put some encouragement in there for a moment. Isn't it good to have something? Whew, I just need a little commercial break here. Verse 4, I left it blank up there. Uh, verse 4 gives us a little bit of an encouragement. It says, uh, they were told, again, not to harm the grass. And by the way, isn't that encouraging to you that they were told? God tells them something, and these hideous creatures have to obey. Okay? 
they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God. John means this whole chapter. Like, some of you are sitting here right now in this chapter so far, and there's this feeling of horror building up in you. This entire chapter is supposed to be an encouragement to you. If you walk with Jesus and love Jesus, this chapter is not meant to be scary to you. So John explicitly writes in there. Uh, They're not... They're not tight. None of these demonic creatures is able to sting those who have the seal of God on them. And if you have Jesus in your heart, you are sealed against the stings of these demons. So, again, what does it mean, though, that these demons are stinging people? And again, we have these cartoon ideas. You know, you know, people, so if they're invisible, you know, people are standing in the front lawn just mowing or raking or whatever, and they get a sting, and oh, you don't even see why, and people are dropping all over the place, and they're screaming, and I just, I think if we want to know what it means when a demon stings someone, I think we should just look in Scripture and look in life and see what happens now when a demon attacks someone. And the vast majority of the time, when demons do damage to people, it's not just them doing something directly to a person visibly, it's them working through another person to hurt. But if we look here, let's look at, the, at uh, Matthew chapter 8. How did the demonized men in the book of Matthew act? We could look at a bunch of these, but Matthew eight twenty eight, And when he, that's Jesus, came to the other side of the lake, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tomb so fierce, and the Greek there is that fierce, is violent, it's savage. They were so violent. Okay, so what does it look like when demons are tormenting someone? These men are so violent that nobody walks in that area. No one passes that way. They don't even use the road there. They stay away. These men who are tormented by these demons are that vicious. And then Jesus sends the demons into the pigs, right? And we even learn from what happens to the pigs, right? So now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him. I love the demons begged Jesus. If you are sealed by Jesus, Revelation 9 is not scary. Who's in charge? Who's in control? Who do they go to for permission? Jesus. They beg him, saying, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he says to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, what happens when these demons go into a herd of pigs? They rush down the steep bank into the sea and drown in the waters. This is what happens when demons are tormenting people. There's, it's like madness, okay? It's madness, it's violence. And of course, it's not only one or two things. There's no doubt, you know, many things that can come out. But now let's imagine a little bit. What could this look like? And biblically, what could it look like if a horde of demons is unleashed from the bottomless pit to torment people? What does that look like in the real world? If, if we're not going to see, and I really don't believe we will, if we're not going to see weird-looking creatures flying around stinging people, but something real is happening, the bottomless pit is open up and these demonic creatures come out, what does that look like in the physical? And I really believe what it looks like is a lot like some of the outbursts of what I believe are incredibly demonic evil events that have happened throughout history. And, you know, one of the most recent ones, I've talked about this one before, but it's, again, it's just so horrifying, but this is the 25th 
anniversary. In fact, it's right now around this time of year, I believe, April or May. Um, is the 25th anniversary, 1994, of the, of the Rwandan genocide, right? So, Rwandan genocide. Little refresher. Uh, you know, you've got Hutus and Tutsis are the two main ethnic groups there. Uh, the president of the country, his plane crashes. The Hutu majority blames the Tutsi minority. And, uh, and the sparks, uh, I was going to say a conflict. It's not even a conflict. It's not a war. It's not a fight. It's a slaughter. And for 100 days, literally 100 days, 100 days of horror, the, Hutsi, the, the Hutu majority actually stops going to work. The country shuts down. They, they pick up machetes, and they go and they systematically and gruesomely slaughter, in 100 days, 800,000 Tutsis. For the most part, they do not do it with, with you know, tanks and machine guns mowing people down. That would be evil enough. It's neighbor-to-neighbor violence. People who have lived together or beside each other for decades, and the neighbors go into the neighbor's house. They've lived together and shared food together. They go into the neighbor's house, and with a machete, they hack a whole family to bits. The children, the babies, everyone. There's multiple examples of Hutu husbands hacking their Tutsi wives to death. It's a madness that actually traumatized the world. I, I read some more articles again this week. Some of these things are so important that we never forget them. The world at the time was literally traumatized. People had no idea something like this could even happen. And you say, how can something so evil? I mean, people were burned up. They would hunt down their neighbors and friends and burn them alive. They would, they would take refuge in churches. And there's examples of of Hutu priests and, and nuns who helped the killers, who would open churches, and they'd go in there and kill everybody. I mean, just gruesome. Bodies piled in some cases, four or five high. It's just evil to a level you can't even imagine. And you say, well, are you blaming that just on demons? Well, Paul says our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against principalities. And you say, oh, okay, so you Christians just put it all down to demons. No, first of all, that's intellectually lazy. There's lots of factors that go into this. Yes, there's historical factors, and we need to pay attention to those things. You know, some of the things that, you know, from colonialism and how this thing got set up and racial tensions, and yes, there's all kinds of those things. We need to pay attention to those things, and we need to learn from those things. Absolutely. It is intellectual lazy, laziness to just say demons and leave it there. But at the same time, if you take the demonic component out, I don't know how you explain that kind of evil. How do you explain that? How do you explain that level, 100 days of slaughter and madness? And now you have people living together, even 25 years ago, you've got neighbors and they're working through forgiveness and you've got two people who've lived you know, beside each other for 30 years and now this person's trying to get along with this person and this person actually came into their house and hacked to death most of their kids. Like a, but somehow they survived and now here they are trying to carry on being neighbors. That's the sort of thing that is is common in some places in, in Rwanda. So how do you explain that kind of evil? I'll tell you, this is what it looks like. Paul says, yes, there's all these other factors and they all fit in. The demonic is not the whole thing. It's part of something. But there are these demonic principalities. And when a demonic scourge, in, play, in, in cases like that, Paul would say there is, there is a darker power at work there. Okay, how else do you explain it? I mean, I remember watching a documentary years ago 
where they were interviewing Germans living, who had lived in Germany during World War II, and they were talking about you know, Adolf Hitler's speeches and how, again, you have this guy who's not particularly intelligent, he's not particularly good-looking, there's really nothing about him, suddenly, out of nowhere, comes into power in the most powerful country in Europe and ends up trying to take on the world and exterminating millions of people. I mean, how does this even happen without... I know there's economic factors and historical factors and socio-political factors. All of those matter. They certainly do. But how do you really explain that if there's not a spiritual element? And then they interview these, these Germans, and they talk about these speeches. Hitler would go all over Germany giving these speeches, and hundreds of thousands of people would pack out plazas and massive stadiums to hear these speeches. And they, they would all describe it the same way. They would say his speeches were mesmerizing. And by the end of his speech, you'd have thousands of grown men weeping openly often. By the end of a speech the entire crowd would literally be willing to give their lives for Hitler and do basically whatever he told them. How, again, I know there's all kinds of human factors in there. How do you explain that, though, without the spiritual? Paul says our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It is against principalities and powers and rulers. So if you ask me, when I read Revelation 9, and I think, what does it look like when a horde of demons is unleashed on the earth to sting people? I don't think of a cartoon I think of outbreaks of genocide and violence and evil that staggers the imagination. And I I, I really think that is confirmed if we stay within the context of this passage. If we go to the very next trumpet, the very next verse, verse 12, the first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So again, we see angels bound up that are being unleashed. Now again, they're unleashed, okay? Now what's going to happen? So it says here, the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. And again, that number a third there is not scientific, You don't need to do population estimates and all that sort of stuff because all the trumpets are about a third. It's a third this and a third is destroyed and a third of that and a third killed and a third. All the trumpets are about a third. The point of a third is it's not everybody and it's worse than the seals. The seals talked about a quarter. The trumpets talk about a third. The bulls affect everyone. There's, the whole point is that it's an increasing severity as we go from the seals to trumpets to bulls. But anyway, these angels are released to kill a third of mankind. Now, again, we get these cartoonish ideas. Angels flying around and people just dropping dead, okay? Just one third, you know, every family, every workplace, and people just dropping. No. When angels do damage, when fallen angels do violence on the earth, it's not in a cartoonish way where people are just dropping. They do it through people. Look at the very next verse. Four angels are released. To kill a third of mankind, what's the very next thing we see? The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. You see how the spiritual and physical are always connected? When these powerful, Paul says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, it's against principalities and powers. When these powers are released, what do we see? Massive armies raised up and war occurring. That's what happens. You can see this throughout the scripture. 
Demonic power is at work, and the result is war on earth and violence on earth. See, we tend to interpret human events as having only human causes. We read the newspaper and we say, you know, so-and-so leader did such-and-such, therefore so-and-so country did such-and-such, and therefore this thing happened. And all of those human factors matter. But the fact of the matter is, the Bible gives us a glimpse, there's a whole other world out there, and you can't explain things just in terms of human causes. There are spiritual causes mixed with human causes. Again, as Paul said in Ephesians 6, verse 12, that we, our fight is against rulers and authorities. Well, anyway, we continue on in Revelation chapter 9. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. Again, we're going to see demonic descriptions. They wore breastplates the, the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. I really wonder, I wonder, if we could go back in time and look at some of these historical events where there have been horrific outbursts of evil. I wonder if we were given John's perspective, if we were given God's perspective to see the spiritual overlaid with the physical, I wonder if we'd see this sort of demonic depiction too. When you see armies marching out to destroy, uh, you know, genocide, a people group, I wonder if instead of just seeing foot soldiers, we'd actually see demonic creatures on top of, around, in the midst of, but marching, if we'd actually see a demonic army marching overlapped with the human army, I wonder. And I, th I think that's what's happening here. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed. There's that number third again. By the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads. And by means of them, they wound. All right. Well, let's finish this message with the best part, which is two points of comfort. Because again, some of you are going, oh my goodness. That is a dark, dark passage. But remember, this passage is actually meant to be an encouragement to those who are sealed by Jesus. Two points of comfort in this chapter. First, as I said before, God's people are sealed. These demonic, horrific, hideous beings are told not to harm the grass, or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God. Now, practically speaking, what does that mean? What does that mean that the demons themselves can't torment us, and yet we know in the book of Revelation that we're not spared from persecution? I mean, one of the common themes in the book of Revelation is be faithful unto death. So we're not spared death. There's martyrs in here. And we're going to see that. I mean, when we get to chapter 13, there's just some stark challenges to believers to be faithful even when it, the persecution is intense. So we know from the book of Revelation that we are certainly not spared from persecution and martyrdom, yet we see that we are sealed against this demonic um, torment and attack. How are those, can those two things be true at the same time? And let's just look at a historical example. How many of you know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is? The story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, okay? Those of you who don't know, you should know about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I'm sure. They've made movies about everybody. I'm sure there's a movie or two about him. It might be poorly made, but, this, but if you're not a reader, just go watch it anyway, okay? Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you're a reader, I would highly recommend, highly, highly, I can't recommend it enough, just buy it for yourself. 
Okay, get it on Kindle. We have a couple of copies in the library, but they're usually signed out. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the biography by Eric Metaxas, it's about this thick and it's worth every page, okay? You can get it on Kindle and you can burn your eyes out on your phone over the next month or two, okay? Whatever you want, however you want to do it, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Anyway, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German, grew up, lived in Germany, uh, and uh, him and his family were alive in Germany when, when Hitler and the Nazis came to power. And uh, during that time, many Christians who were riding on the fence compromised. And they compromised for two reasons. First of all, I mean, all of, always compromise comes because of fear. They were intimidated. And second of all, the Nazis didn't just show up and say, we want to kill six million Jews and a whole bunch of millions of other people. They didn't show up saying that. They did one little thing and one little thing and one little thing and intimidating the whole time. And many churches in these early days completely caved and compromised. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was not one of them. And uh, in the midst of Nazi Germany, he was a voice of love and clarity and truth. At a certain point in the war, because he was a voice for love and truth and, and, and standing against the Nazis, he actually fled Germany. And he was in America, I forget for how long, some months anyway. And while he was in America, he got a... a first of all, he loved his country, and he loved Jesus, and he got a rhema word, I think somewhere in Isaiah, I can't remember where exactly, but he felt God was saying, you need to go back to Germany, and his love for his country, he's like, I can't be out of Germany when Germany's in her time of greatest need. And his friends all try to convince him, don't go back to Germany, that's a bad idea for your, for your physical health. And it's true, if our goal as a church and as Christians is to live as long as we possibly can, then serving Jesus is, is sometimes going to lead to uh, defeat. But if your goal is to advance the kingdom of God, sometimes we're called to do things that actually are not safe. Is that not true? So Bonhoeffer went back to Germany, and he's essentially running almost like a little underground church, and he's training up leaders, and he's discipling people, and he continues to stand up for truth and grace and right. And sure enough, close to the end of the war, the Nazis actually... Uh, arrest him, they put him in a camp, and just before the end of the war, they kill him, okay? Now you say, okay, what does that illustrate? Other than that, you can die for your faith. Well, that's what Revelation says, be faithful unto death. That's actually success. Success is not just living as long as you can. Success is doing the right thing and being faithful to Jesus. Now, but was he protected from demonic torment. Absolutely. When the rest of his countrymen, and you, you go to Germany now, I mean, they have apologized so often. I mean, they've got memorials. Uh, shortly after the war finished, the Americans actually took, made many of the German citizens pass through some of the death camps just to see what they had been a part of, and many of them wept. They were broken. There was like this feeling of, what happened to us? It's almost like the madness passed and their eyes were open. It's like, what have we done? What has happened here? But Dietrich Bonhoeffer was never deceived, was he? He was never consumed by rage or hate or anger or fear. The entire time, he was a voice of reason and grace and love for Jesus. Why? Because he's sealed. And we are sealed against the demonic in that rage and torment, and hate, and filth don't control us. We are sealed against the demonic. Now, 
as a result of other people's control by the demonic, we may suffer martyrdom and persecution and those things. But be tormented by, a de- by, by the devil, we are sealed. Second thing that we can take tremendous comfort from is that it only lasts five months. Look at this. They were allowed. Don't you love that word allowed? Now, right away someone wants to raise their hands and say, why does Jesus allow it at all? I don't have an answer to that. I talked about that two weeks ago. I don't know why he allows it. That's above my pay grade. We can ask him in heaven. I will tell you this. I'm really happy he is in control, though, aren't you? I don't know why he allows it, but I'm sure glad they have to get allowance. And then it says five months. Now, in Revelation, you always have to be careful. So many numbers are symbolic. And, and, you know, sevens and tens and twelves, those are really symbolic numbers. Five isn't a really symbolic number. So maybe this is just five months, or maybe it just means a distinct short period of time. Whatever the case, it has to mean some kind of distinct short period of time. You know what's amazing to me? As we look through history, Jesus has always operated this way. We look at some of the horrific things that happen. You look at Rwanda again, it goes 100 days, and it's so horrific. Why did it have to happen at all? I don't know. But aren't you glad it didn't go on for 200? And why did it stop at all? The spirits that were at work there and stirring these things up, why didn't it cascade out of the borders and spread out all over and keep going? Why did Hitler, why do the Hitlers never succeed in conquering the entire world? Aren't you glad that he didn't figure out the atomic bomb first? And that actually a bunch of German scientists, some geniuses that should have been working for the Nazis like Einstein, instead helped the Americans. Aren't you glad some of those things happened and that he didn't succeed? Why is that? It's the sovereign hand of God. He always confines in his sovereignty. I don't know why he allows it at all sometimes. Someday we'll get answers and he'll wipe every tear away. In the meantime, I am tremendously comforted to know he is in control, aren't you? So, we are fighting a spiritual battle against demonic hordes that are hideous and despicable. But we do not need to fear them, and the way we fight them is by contrasting that horrific, evil ugliness with the beauty of Jesus. By being a people who are meek and humble and forgiving, who turn the other cheek, who love those who hate us and who bless those who persecute us, we are to contrast the ugliness of the demonic with the beauty of Jesus. Why don't you bow your heads with me and close your eyes. Thank you, Jesus, that we can come to church here freely still today. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are sovereign over the demonic realm. May we be a church that never stops praying. We are in a spiritual war. And if we're in a spiritual war, then that means we must be spiritual people. We must be a church that prays. We must be a church that loves. We must be a church that gives and has joy in the face of a dark, dark world. Help us to be a church that, based on revelation, is a church that is encouraged and bold in the face of Satan's attacks. In your precious name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.